Catherine Switzer was 20 years old. She was a journalism major at Syracuse University. It was on April the 19th, 1967, that she had registered to run in the Boston Marathon. She registered under the name K.V. Switzer. She was given the number 261, 261. That morning when she arrived in Boston, it was raining and it was sleeting, and so she had on a heavy sweatsuit. She pinned her number onto her sweatsuit. She went and lined up at the starting line with three of her friends who had come with her, three of the men, and when they shot the gun and she took off to run, she made history because she was the first woman registered to ever run in the Boston Marathon. She was a game changer. It was a big deal. Why? Because women don't get to run in the Boston Marathon in 1967. In fact, the whole world knew women can't run long distances. I don't know whether you knew that or not. You might share that message with Savannah White. No, back in 1896, when the Olympics first began, it was only men. Only men. And it wasn't until 1926 that finally women were allowed to participate. And women were allowed to participate, and they let them run a race that year that was 800 meters long. And when the women crossed that 800 meters, they collapsed. They were so exhausted. And the men said, see, see, we told you, they can't run long distances. And so women were limited to running races no more than 200 meters for decades. In fact, women were not allowed to run the 5,000 meter, the 10,000 meter, or the marathon race at the Olympics until 1984. Just 1984, they were finally allowed to run like that. So in 1967... When Catherine Switzer lines up to run the Boston Marathon and she takes off, that was significant. That was big. Big enough to get her attacked. She made it about two miles. Two miles running with her male cohorts. Everything was going well. And then this trailer came by carrying all the reporters and carrying a man named Jock Simpleton. Jock Simpler was the, one of the organizers of the race. And as they were driving by, one of the reporters looked over and said, Jock, you got a dame out there. He was furious. He stopped and he jumped off of the truck and he ran out after Catherine to rip that number off of her sweatsuit. She heard him coming and lunged back. He missed and he's now clutching and just snarling at her. She was shocked, but he was determined to get her number and get her out of the race. But it turned out that Catherine's boyfriend, a man named Tom Miller, was an all-American football player. <laughs> he was running beside her, and at that moment, he knew how to throw a block right from the side Jock literally went airborne and landed on the side of the road in a heap. But little did they know, the reporter had jumped off of the truck and was snapping pictures as fast as they could. 
Now, this wasn't digital camera. You had to wait to go develop it to see what you had. They ran the rest of the race. They took off running fast. They wanted to kind of get out of that area. But they didn't need to worry about it. Nobody decided to bother Catherine again. <laughs> and she finished the race. And so she became the first woman to ever officially register to run and to finish the Boston Marathon. And people were furious. That night, she and her three friends were driving all the way back home in New York it was about 1 o'clock in the morning when they pulled into an all-night diner, and when they pulled in, there was a man reading the newspaper, and they looked over, and when they saw the front page of the newspaper, they saw their pictures plastered all over it. The paper was all full of those pictures. Everyone was talking about it. And Catherine knew in that moment her life had changed forever. She knew it. She had gone out there to run just to, to have the joy of running and showing she could do a marathon. But she knew that circumstances had changed and she had now been put in a place where she could make a difference forever. Sure enough, they got back home and Catherine began deciding to work. I'm going to help other women run. She ultimately would partner up with Avon Cosmetics who decided to support women's races all around the world to create races for women. And so she began talking about it and becoming this advocate for it. It's amazing that what happened was because of the picture, it literally went around the globe and women around the globe said, we are not going to be pushed off the course again. We deserve to run. Time magazine said they went back and chose the top 100 pictures for the 20th century that changed the world, and this was one of those top 100 pictures. They said it literally changed the sport of running and changed the world. Catherine would be working, and finally in 1972, they allowed women to run in the Boston Marathon five years later. Finally allowed women to run. There were eight women who signed up. She came in third among those eight. Eight women in 1972. Do you know how many women ran last year? More than 13,000. The winners of the 1972 Boston Marathon, you know what they won? If you crossed the line first, you received a very special bowl of stew. That's what the winners got, a bowl of stew. This last year, when the winners crossed, they won $150,000, male and female. It was a new world. Catherine would wind up running in the New York Marathon 1974, and she won. And then she ran again in Boston in 1975 and came in second. But she would spend her life going around the world creating groups. She called them 261 Fearless. 261 was the number she was wearing that day. Fearless. They were support groups. They were women's running clubs. And the whole idea, she wanted to encourage women to be supportive of each other so you could be fearless in the face of adversity. Catherine Switzer was a game changer. 
It changed her life, and she changed her world. This morning, I want to continue on with a sermon series that I started last week entitled Game Changers. We said, you know, sport is such a part of our culture. I mean, you can't deny it. You look at how many of our children have sports all throughout the week, every kind of sport. You look at how many millions went to football games yesterday. How many will be going today? No, sport is a part of our culture. And so we thought, wouldn't it be fun to kind of go through a series where we looked at people who were game changers. They changed their sport and they changed the world. And then each week to look at a Bible character who sets a good example for us and shows us how through our faith God can use ordinary, average people just like you and me and Catherine. Last week we looked at Arnold Palmer, normal people whose lives can be changed through the grace of God and we become game changers. You know, today is a game changer. You brought us to this day. And it has been fun to hear the stories about how your life has been changed as you've been on this journey for the last two and a half years. And it's exciting to think all the lives and the way we are going to change the world because of today. The person I wanted us to look at today was Esther, because she's a fascinating story. The book of Esther. We believe that Esther takes place in about 475 BCE. And, and it's during the time of the Persian dynasty, Xerxes is king. Most scholars would say that the book of Esther contains a kernel of a historical truth, but those who wrote the book of Esther probably did so years later, and they told the story in such a way as they wanted to make a point of truth, eternal truth, for everybody down through the centuries. And so that's why they told the story in a certain way. The story is about King Xerxes and how he has a falling out with King Vashti, his queen, and they get divorced. And so the king says, I need a new queen. And they put out word to everybody and say, you know, if you want to apply for being queen, you can do that. And, and so in the end, here you have a young Jewish girl. Her name is Esther. Her parents had died. She had been an orphan. She was raised by her uncle Mordecai. And she applies for the job, and she gets it, and Esther becomes queen to Xerxes, king of Persia. Now, I discovered a whole lot of material, and I'm going to let you go back and read that if you'd like to see how we got there. I just want to pick up on the story at this point, where Esther is queen to Xerxes. It turns out that King Xerxes uh, has, a, has a man who's his second-in-command named Haman. And Haman is very full of himself, and he likes everybody to bow down to him when he comes by. But it turns out that, that Mordecai didn't want to bow down to Haman because you only bow down to God. And so when Haman comes by, he doesn't bow down. It makes Haman just all bent out of shape. And so he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and says, we need to exterminate all the Jews. He goes to King Xerxes and gets permission to do that. 
word comes to Mordecai that they're about to start a program to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And he sends word to Esther and says, you got to go to the king. you got to stop this. Everyone is in serious trouble. And Esther suits back and says, you can't go to the king unless he asks you to come. And if you come into the king's presence and he didn't ask you, it's death. Unless he holds out the golden scepter, you die. He hadn't asked for me in 30 days. And Mordecai shoots back and says, you know, you may be able to hide in the palace, maybe not, but all of the people are going to die. Maybe God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. I can't help but wonder if God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. You can be a game changer. I want us to think about it. I just want to share with you two ideas. First of all, it was Esther who was confronted with an incredible opportunity to save her people, to bless so many. And yet there was considerable risk. Great opportunity? There was a great risk. It sure is easy to say no. When the risk seems high to the opportunity that has come your way, it is so easy to say no. For Esther, I mean, if she reveals herself that she is a Jew, now she's at risk with all the other people. If she comes into the king and he's not in a good mood, she is dead. Scholars say that Esther was written with a specific purpose. The purpose of Esther is to try to say people like Esther. She was an orphan. She was poor. She's a young Jewish girl. God can use her to save his people. God can use the ordinary, average person without power and wealth to be a game changer. That was the message that the people were supposed to hear from this story. I've told you before, you've been, if you've been coming for a while, you know Marsh is my son, Paul, um, went off to Johns Hopkins University um, to play baseball when he graduated high school here in Oklahoma City. He wanted to be a surgeon, and now he is. He's down to his last six months of a vascular fellowship, and he will soon be back home next June as a vascular surgeon. And we are so excited to have him back home after being gone for seven years learning how to do this. But because he went to Hopkins, we would travel to Baltimore, and we learned so many wonderful stories because of the heritage of that school. One of the stories we learned while we were up there was about a man named Alfred Blaylock. Alfred Blaylock had graduated from Hopkins, and he would ultimately become a physician and went to work at Vanderbilt. He was a brilliant man. And he not only did surgery, he, he did lots of research. But he was so busy, he needed an assistant, and it turned out there was a man who was cleaning the lab. His name was Vivian Thomas. Vivian Thomas was African-American. Now, this was back in the 1920s. There was no money for Vivian Thomas to get to go to college, and culture would not have allowed him to go be a physician. But he would take Dr. 
Blaylock's books home at night and read them, and he learned everything. This guy was brilliant. Vivian Thomas would have made a wonderful surgeon if the culture had been different in the time. He learned what he could. He was so smart. Soon Dr. Blaylock began to realize how smart he was, and he made him his research assistant, even though Vivian Thomas had only graduated from high school. They began working as a team. And Dr. Blaylock did so well, he got invited to come back to Hopkins as the chief of surgery. And he went back and he took Vivian Thomas with him because they were partners. And he got back there and he said to the staff, you know, now that I'm home, I want to do great surgery, but I also want us to do research. What do you think we need to work on that would change the world? And it was Dr. Helen Tossig, this is 1941 now, you didn't have women surgeons in 1941, but Dr. Helen Tossig was a woman surgeon, and she worked with children, and she was concerned about blue babies. Now, blue babies, you may know, it is a syndrome when a baby is born with a hole in their heart, and when the blood flows, the blood doesn't go down to the lungs and get oxygenated. It kind of passes right on through. The valves aren't working, and so you don't get enough air. You start turning blue. You look like you're suffocating. And children who were blue babies in the 1940s lived 18 to 24 months. Maybe you got lucky and lived 10 years. Life was short. The problem was everybody knew you couldn't operate on the heart. And so Helen Tossig spoke up and said, we need to do something for blue babies. And so suddenly you had this fascinating team put together. Alfred Blaylock, Vivian Thomas, and Helen Tossig. And they all began saying, how could we operate on an infant's heart. And they began working and trying to experiment and figure. And when word finally spread among the staff, they said, you are nuts. What are you doing? I mean, don't you know you're going to operate on some child and they will die? What will that do for your reputation? What will that do for the reputation of Hopkins? You're going to kill a child. What's that going to do to the parents? You can't take that risk. And Alfred Blaylock is known for his response. Because what he said was, all you see is risk. What I see is opportunity. The three of them continued to work. And in November of 1944, they found a family. Eileen Saxon was 15 months old. She had an open hole in her heart. She was a blue baby. She was going to die soon if nothing happened. And they decided they were willing to trust Dr. Blaylock and his team to try. There was risk, but it was an opportunity. And so they went into that surgery and they did it, and it worked. She lived. She did well. It was amazing. Suddenly the color came to her face and she made it. You know, one of those who was a resident surgeon who was in on the team that day was some guy named Denton Cooley. Denton Cooley would ultimately go to Houston with Dr. Michael DeBakey and be some of the greatest heart surgeons in the world. And he would be one of the first to do a heart transplant 
but it was Dr. Blaylock and his team who created cardiac surgery and showed you could operate even on an infant's heart and change the world. All you see is risk, but I see opportunity. For Esther, there was an opportunity, and it brought great risk. Would she try? Maybe God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. You know, it was special back in the fall of 2012, November. Marsh and I had been planning a, a trip to go sailing down in Grenada. Some things came up. We didn't get to go. I'd already scheduled to have a Sunday off. Wendy was scheduled to be preaching. And so we decided to change our plans. And if we didn't get to go sailing, let's just take a quick trip up to Kansas City and just have a nice weekend away. So we headed up to Kansas City. And you may know that up in Kansas City, there's Church of the Resurrection. Church of the Resurrection is the largest Methodist church in the world. And it was a Church of the Resurrection that they had started satellite campuses. They had gone and done this thing that you have live band and people and it's a live worship service. And then at a certain time, the screen comes down and Adam Hamilton would show up and be preaching. And I said, you know, that's got to be the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I said, I don't get it. Why in the world would anybody come to church for something like that? And I said, we we got a week off. Let's just go experience it and see what it is like. And so we went up to Kansas City, and on that Sunday morning, we went to Res West. And it was sleeting. The parking lot was packed. We went into the church, and a wonderful congregation was there, and and Adam was talking, and he said something like, all right, how many of you, and, you know, to raise, and all these people raised up their hands. I leaned over to Marsh and said, don't they know he can't see them? <laughs> there was such interaction, and the band was great, and we got in the car, and we were driving away from that morning, and neither one of us said a word, and as we were driving away, I said, I've been to church. I've been to church. If I was living in this community and I was looking for a church, I'd come back here. It spoke to my soul this morning. Marcia said, it it, it did me too. We came back home and I I got together with Phil and with Wendy and, and I said, Wendy, I want you to go up to Kansas City. I want you to go church and experience this. I want you to just see if, was I having an off day? I want you to go see this. And so she did. And and she came back and said, it's great. So Phil and Wendy and I got together for a retreat, an executive team retreat, and we went and started talking about it. Is this something we want to get involved in? Should we even think about this? And we began to talk about it. And so then we came back and met with our executive lay leadership team and said, we've got to tell you something we've been thinking about. Wendy had been doing all this research. She had been meeting with other people. She had heard and learned so much. This was going on all over the country. And so as she learned and shared and we all talked and talked with our key leaders, they were so enthusiastic and said, you need to go do this. So then we went and talked to the bishop and we talked with the cabinet and said, we're thinking about an idea here. Is this something you would be supportive of? 
And they came and got back and said, we're 100% behind you, by all means. So we did some more research and some more planning, and we then came to our administrative board, and we said to the administrative board, here's what we've learned, and here's what we're seeing, and what do you think? And the administrative board voted unanimously to go start a, a satellite campus. Because, you know, the spirit at St. Luke's for 127 years has always been to dream, to see the opportunities that God gives to us and to take a risk. We love the statement, wouldn't it be great if... And then we fill in the blank. So now we said, wouldn't it be great if... if we had a new satellite campus, found a new and different way to share God's love and bring hope to the world... We'd put together a plan. And I don't believe you just get an idea and say, oh, let's just go do it because it's a great idea. No, you study it, you put together a plan, and then you start, you go. And so we put together a plan and came up with ideas three years ago. What does this campus need to do if it's going to make it, if it's going to be sustainable? And we came up with numbers. What do we think we need to be each year all the way to 2020? And you know what the number is for 2017? January 2017. We said, you know, we need to have an average worship attendance in January of 2017 of 375. Yeah, I thought that's funny too now. <laughs> because the last Sunday in August, you had 417 in worship. And for the, yes, absolutely, amen. Yeah. <laughs> the last several months you've been running 350 to 400 every week and that's why we were in the school yeah we're gonna do well we set numbers and said where do we need to be financially and I got to tell you your generosity has been so amazing we're exceeding all the financial projections we wanted to have a child care we said what a ministry to the community how many people will it help to bring into the church and the money will also help to cover cost at the facility. And it's supposed to hold 155 children originally. And we said, you know, if we could get to 90% capacity, 140, and we gave ourselves 18 months to slowly build into that and become fully operational, that's a part of the business plan here, 18 months to get to the 140. And I got to tell you, at the end of September, one month after we opened, we were at 130. We know that the end of October, we're getting ready to start two more classes. We'll exceed the 140 at the end of this month. That's doing pretty well. <laughs> no, I, I look at where we are, and I think of the risk. But we also opportunity. That maybe God was giving us a vision of a new way to be able to share God's love and bring hope to the world. Maybe God has brought you here to this place for such a time as this. We've got to try. And secondly, when I look at Esther, what I see is she took the greatest risk. The greatest risk was for Esther. Esther was not known as a Jew. You have to say the king's men 
did not do a very good job vetting the candidates for queen. This seems to be a common issue nowadays. Nobody knew that Esther was a Jew. And so if she comes out and says it, she has a lot to lose. I mean, here she is living in the palace. She now has food. She has servants. She is safe. She's living in a beautiful place. Now, if she goes to the king, it's not for her sake. It's for her people's sake. If she goes to the king, it's because this is more than just about her. It's about something bigger than her. It's about her people. That she believes God wants to use her to bless so many. To be a game changer, you've got to be somebody who understands this is more than just about yourself. For Catherine Switzer, it was more than just about herself. And I love the rest of her story. How she did work so hard to get women to be able to run in the Boston Marathon. And do you know, she and, and Jock made up. They were reconciled. And in the end, five years later, he was the one who pushed for women to run in the Boston Marathon. He would later write a book entitled, They Call Me Jock, because he was so well known among the athletic circles in Boston. And it was Catherine who came to him and said, I'd be happy to endorse the book and push it. And in 1988, when he was in the hospital and he was dying, Catherine was there to visit him in his last day. It was more than just about her. This was about something for so many people. And so she would work and work until finally in 1984, it was adopted that women could run long distances. And what a change she made for all of that. And to this day, she now lives with her husband in New Zealand about half the year and New York half the year. And she's a TV commentator, covered the Boston Marathon 36 years in a row. And she's still starting these 261 Fearless. Support group for women so that they are fearless in the face of adversity. Dream your dreams. And next year, the 50th anniversary, she's going to run the Boston Marathon again to show women can do it. It's more than just about her. You and I are here today because it's more than just about us. You know, we are here to really be doing something that's going to outlive us and bless other generations. We're here to do it for the children, for Fisher, and all children like him. I love the Fisher. When we had our, our special theme about a year ago, when we wound up saying something for the first time, Remember, we were all supposed to do something for the first time, be growing. And Fisher was able to say something for the first time. I sat through worship. Almost. <laughs> I love that picture because to me it spoke so much in reminding us we're supposed to be here for all these children who are coming along that we create an environment where they come to church and church is a fun place. You feel good. When I'm going to come and know God, I'm going to come to church. There's something resonating with my soul. And if we raise our children in that environment, we change the future. 
I've loved coming to our Christmas programs with our children and youth for these last two years, coming to the school and seeing three wise men and a baby and, and seeing the different shows. I mean, it inspired me as I saw our children performing. And I knew what it was doing to them as they learned the stories of Christmas. In these last two and a half years, we have celebrated births. We've celebrated adoption. We have celebrated foster families receiving children. We've been there for each other when people have been sick and when loved ones have died. I know what it has meant to you. I have heard the stories of being a family of faith in those moments. And I think of all the people and all the life yet to be lived where we will be there for each other in all those moments of life. It's what it's about. I think about how this church has already had people go on mission trips to Honduras, how we've already taken on mentoring at Sequoia. No, we are a church that is already reaching out in the world to bless people who will never enter these doors. And I think about all the thousands upon thousands of people in Oklahoma City and around the world whose lives will be changed because of you. From our children to the stranger in Honduras, maybe God has brought you to this place for such a time as this because you're a game changer. It's not just about you. It was about two years ago we had two sisters, Hilda and Celia Baugh, come and speak to us. They're Jewish. They live in Israel. Their parents were Joseph and Rebecca Baugh. They're dead now. But they came to tell us stories about their mom and dad because her, their parents were actually in the movie Schindler's List. If you've seen Schindler's List, you'll remember there is two Jews who meet in the concentration camp who fall in love in the midst of all this horrible circumstance and they get married. They manage to survive and they would have a family. Well, that's Joseph and Rebecca Baugh. But it was very special and so um, Hilda was telling us about her dad, how it was back in the 30s, he was actually in school in Krakow, Poland, and he was studying to be a graphic artist. And he was studying when one day his professor said, you know, if you want to stay after class, I'm going to teach something kind of special today. It's not really important. It's not necessary. You don't have to stay. But if you want to, I I'm going to teach. Only Joseph stayed. What the professor wanted to teach was German Gothic letters. It's very difficult to read even harder to write, but Joseph fell in love with it. And so he began saying, teach me more, teach me more. And he learned all about writing German Gothic letters. There was no value in it. He just thought it was fun. Until suddenly Hitler came through and took over Poland. He gathered the Jews into a, a ghetto. It wasn't a concentration camp yet. They were building those. No, this was just a ghetto. And he gathered them all together and you remember it's the Germans who decided to use German Gothic letters for all their official documents and signs. And they found out that Joseph Bauer knew how to write. 
And so they started giving him materials and pen and paper and ink and asking him to create all these official documents. And so he did. He would create these official documents, but since he had the supplies, he also started forging all kinds of documents and helping all kinds of Jews escape from this ghetto. Hundreds were giving false documents and allowed to escape. Well, finally, they closed down the ghetto. They took those who they had, shipped them out to the concentration camps. That's what happened to Joseph Bau. He wound up in the concentration camp. It's where he would meet his wife. They would marry. They would survive and have their two daughters. So when the movie Schindler's List got produced, of course, they wanted to go talk to the couple that was really inspiring this part of the movie, and they were interviewing them, and they asked Joseph Bau, they said, it's amazing all the people you helped escape. But the question we have is, why? Why didn't you create documents for yourself so you could escape? And Joseph Bow seemed quite shocked by the question. He looked at them for a moment and said, but if I had escaped, who would have helped all the people? Sometimes it's more than just about me. Esther saw all the people. It was more than just about her. An opportunity with a great risk. We need to try. I believe God can use you with the talents and the abilities that you have right now, where you are in your life right now, God can use you to be a game changer. When in our faith we opened our eyes to the opportunities that God gives us, opportunities full of risk, and we decide to be something bigger than ourselves, you become a game changer. I'm convinced God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.